When traders tell us how to make Thinkorswim even better, we listen. They asked for a version they could access anywhere, no download necessary. We heard them. And when they asked to execute a preset trade strategy in seconds, we said absolutely. Feedback like this inspired us to build Thinkorswim Web, and it continues to push us. So our entire suite of platforms never stops getting better. Because platforms this innovative aren't just made for traders, they're made by them. Thinkorswim Trading, from TD Ameritrade. Hey there. We at Blue Wire just wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this podcast. We know everything outside is pretty scary and uncertain, but we're committed to helping you get through your day by talking about the sports and teams that you love most. If you're looking for more great podcasts to distract you, check out BlueWirePods.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast and stay safe. Blue Wire. The Philadelphia 76ers select Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons. Here comes Simmons between the legs. Embiid! Welcome, everybody, to another, but this time, special episode of the New Slant Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Kyle Newbeck. This week, we're being brought to you by our friends at Bet Online. So, as always, we, we'd like to thank them for helping to keep our lights on, especially during a pandemic. With me this week, we actually have two people with me. As always, my co-host, Seamus Clancy, but a, a special guest with us to discuss the 2001 Philadelphia 76ers, who went to the NBA Finals. Former friend of ours from the Liberty Ballers days. He's still uh, my friend. Co- he's not a former friend. Yes, he's not a former friend. But <laughs> still formerly my of friend. The Ballers. Um, currently with NBC Sports Philadelphia and the Broad Street Line radio show, our buddy Roy Burton. Roy, how are you today? Doing pretty good. I, you know, I thought I was still you know, your guys' friend, but now I feel a certain <laughs> way. But uh, no, thanks for, thanks for having me on your podcast anyway. No, yeah, you know, we, uh, friends and enemies alike, everyone's welcome <laughs> here. So we decided to bring frenemy of the pod, Roy, on because uh, I, I think Seamus and I discussed this a little bit. We were trying to think of how to get through this period with no basketball. Obviously, I, I've written a little about this, the one team, but I think Roy's memories of that team and, and certainly of Allen Iverson from that era are a little more vivid than ours, so we we turn to ROG to help us get through this. <laughs> um, I guess so, Roy. I recently rewatched that one Finals, and all these memories came rushing back to me. Certainly, good and bad uh, from Game One through Game Five. But before we get to that point, I guess what sticks out in your mind to you? when you think back on that season, whether it's like a particular game play where maybe you finally had the feeling of like, Oh man, this, this really might be the year for this team. Um, it's, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I was thinking about that before, uh, when you guys first asked me to be on the show and I'm, I'm just trying to think what memory other than the kind of the obvious memories kind of sticks out to me about that, about that season. And there was a game, I think it was the first game after the all-star break when they played Milwaukee and they won, I think it was like, I think they won by three. It's like 107, 104, or something like that. And I think Iverson had 49. And and it was uh, at the end of the game, like they had come back from, I think they were down like five or six, and they had come back. And at the end of the game, um, the Milwaukee was trying to foul, and they kind of played keep away with the ball for like 20 seconds. It was like an amazing <laughs> moment where they're just passing the ball all around. And you like zoom off's going crazy, like on, on, the, on the TV call. And I'm like, you know what? Like this team goes into Milwaukee, you know, shorthanded, because that's when Theo Ratliff was still hurt. And they go right. into Milwaukee and, and they and they you know they come from behind and they win and Iverson scores forty nine and you know they beat one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference you know on their home floor. That's kind of when I had a feeling that that two thousand one was going to be a special year. Yeah, I I think for me, I, I and this is what really stood out to me looking back at this team recently. The thing that stands out is that they just felt like they were never dead. Like even I, I watched some of the conference finals too recently. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was was a game might have been game six in Milwaukee. They were down like thirty something points, and you know, normal coach, maybe even a smart coach, would have decided, <laughs> "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna pack it in. We're gonna rest guys because we have game seven on our home floor." And right, you know, that like that means something. But 
but they they kept playing and they competed and I think Raja Bell had a, a prominent role in that game and they they cut the mm-hmm. lead down to like I want to say it was like eight to ten points and that was what they did all year is like teams would get out to leads and like none of them were safe because they would play that full court pressure defense they play like some three guard lineups they have Iverson Eric Snow Aaron McKee out there and they would just dog teams full court and it, it it became very easy for them to flip games on their head and that that full court defense is is probably my favorite thing about that year I don't know if they could have gotten away with pressing for for 48 minutes like a Rick Pitino uh college team but it sure was fun to watch in the the small bouts that we got to see in him and, and that was the thing like they weren't especially deep I mean they, they had you know guys who can do that like George Lynch and, and other guys but I mean, like, there were only, like, those guys, like, the McKees and the and Eric Snows and those guys, I mean, those guys were playing, like, 38, 39, 40 minutes, like, a lot of those <laughs> games. And it was a kind of a testament to, like, just how tough those guys were to, just to play that many minutes, you know, being as banged up as they were for most of that season and, and you know, being able to carry that all the way to the finals. Yeah, and I think that was the first year I was about, I want to say, I'm trying to count the years in my head, figure out how old I was. Oh, jeez. It's like 11 or 12. Oh, uh, don't tell me that. Um, and <laughs> and I, I, that's the first year that I remembered. And it's well, partially because the Sixers were so bad for most of my childhood. Yeah. It's the first year I can remember there being like a palpable buzz about the team where you know you see the flags everywhere right. on people's cars <laughs> all the bumper stickers people are wearing more merch more jerseys more jackets t-shirts hoodies whatever it is that there was a, a visible sixers presence for the first time in my life and i like i didn't grow up in the city i was in the suburbs so you know mm-hmm. i like i, I think there are well, it's a, suburban, it's weird because there are like pockets of places where basketball is important. It's not like the Eagles, though, or like, you know, the whole region rallies behind them. It's more of a niche sport than, I guess, football is. But, you know, that that was like, wow, this is an awakening for me. It's like other people actually care about basketball. Now you come to find out that maybe not everyone cared as much as, <laughs> as I did or you did or Seamus did, Roy, but it was uh, – it was certainly like that's probably the most fun I ever had watching and following that team. It helped that they were very good. No, that that was the thing. Like you mentioned the flags, and that was the one thing. That was one of the other things that kind of stuck stuck out to me about that season. For those who don't remember, um, basically, if you had a car in the um, spring and summer of two thousand and one, you had to have a Sixers flag on your car. Like you had. One of those little plastic flags. Oh, it was flags. embarrassing if you didn't have one of those little flags. <laughs> oh, you had to have it. Like you had to go to Models or wherever and get your flag and kind of have like stick it out your window. And I just remember after after the playoff games, like people would drive down, you know, and like drive just drive around City Hall and honk their horns, and everybody would have their flags in their car, and everybody would go crazy. <laughs> it was like the excitement. There was a palpable energy like in this city. Like it's. It's one of those things that you rarely ever see, you know, anymore. I mean, you, it's rare that we kind of all come together, you know, as Philadelphia or as Sixers fans. You saw a lot of that in two thousand one. It was, it was really, it was really refreshing to see. It was, it was, it was special. It was, a, it was a special year. Yeah, and I think what's funny about it, looking back, is like if you think about what typically gets people excited about a team, or at least like watching sports in general. You think of like high powered, high octane offenses where like man, they can just score at right. any given time. And that team really couldn't score <laughs> worth a damn beyond Iverson. Like I mean, he's the league's leading scorer, was the MVP that year, it was absolutely unbelievable, deserved all the the accolades and, and respect that he earned on that run to the finals. But like <laughs> if he wasn't scoring, they would go through stretches where, you know, like all due respect to Eric Snow, who I actually rewatching that finals, he had a much better finals than I remembered him having. But when you're asking him and McKee and then to a lesser extent, like later in the season, you're dumping the ball down on the low block to Dikembe Mutombo and asking him to hit these like funky hook shots over Shaq. I don't know, man. That's not exactly a, a sustainable <laughs> offensive strategy, but but people love them because number one, they won, and number right. two, 
they, they just sort of embodied that that Philadelphia toughness, like the, the thing that we led the podcast with where, you know, they were never out of games and they, right. they locked in on defense and they had all these these grinder type guys. Tyrone Hill, not a, mm-hmm. not an especially good player, but a grinder. George Lynch, not an especially exceptional offensive guy, but tough as nails defender who, speaking of tough as nails, played in the finals while his broken foot was still healing. So, right. you know, that right. was – that team was as, as tough as they come, and I think that's a big reason why people got behind them beyond the Iverson component. Well, yeah, I have a and question this, as the young yeah. in here. So <laughs> just to give the re, uh, listeners a frame of reference, I was born in 1994, so I had just turned seven in the middle of the playoff run. My birthday is in May. It's in a month, guys, if you want me to get, get me anything. Anyway, <laughs> like the first concrete memories I really have of watching basketball or sports in general are just little bits of that Indiana series and then parts of the final. So I'm not nearly as ingrained as this as you guys. Obviously, I've read, you know, Iverson biographies, different things like that, where I do have a good insight into what's going on with what went on with that team. But just just a random question. Who would you say was that team's? It's different because it's just a different generation where you don't have social media and you're not connecting with people every day and talking about the team and you don't have as many outlets to talk about the team or read about the team. So what was the level of like fan interaction with? Was there a clear fan favorite of people outside of Iverson, obviously? And was there a sense of community you felt with other Sixers fans the way, you know, people did with the Eagles in 2017 or the Phillies during that four or five year stretch? Well, I'll defer to Roy on this one because at least at, like at my age and with my uh, the connections I had at that point, it was, you know, you're at the stage of childhood where everyone is just gravitating toward, hey, that guy's the best player and everything else sort of <laughs> doesn't matter. So maybe Roy has a better yeah. understanding of that. Yeah, outside of Iverson, there really wasn't like a, a fan favorite. It wasn't somebody in particular that, that the fans kind of gravitated to, towards. It was kind of like, you know, back in – the first iteration of the Bulls, you know, they called them Michael and the Jordanaires. It was kind of <laughs> a, sim- a similar kind of thing with the Sixers. I mean, you know, Philly loved Aaron McKee, obviously, because of the local ties. And right. they loved Derek Snow and George Lynch because, you know, the way they played and all that stuff. But there was nobody in particular out of that group that kind of stood out. I mean, they were just kind of supporting characters uh, to to AI and, and Larry Brown to an extent. I look back now, and I, I I do think there's a chance that Eric Snow might have been that guy, just as like a you know, a, some of the plays that I can I, I now just watched him make, but remember him making where you know he's like diving out of bounds to mm-hmm. save a loose ball, and he's sort of the lead guy when they're pressing teams, sort of in that. I'm not comparing them as players, but like sort of in that TJ McConnell role where he's coming off the bench <laughs> in the finals and like right. it looks like he just got shot out of a cannon and he's helping to, you know, bring the energy that they need to get a lift when, you know, you're you're up against a team that's got talent the caliber of of Shaq and Kobe. So I think in, in today's era, there would certainly be some guys that would emerge, like as you said, Roy, the Philly guy factor with, with Aaron McKee. Right always there and it was like i think it was a likable group of guys just because they played so hard in general yeah that's what i was trying to get at who's the tj who is the mike scott but obviously you don't have those sets oh. of like sex of fan groups and stuff the way you know exists now so it's a total different concept of fandom to yeah. me yeah yeah it was sort of total, pre yeah. Pre, like, you know, like, to bring it to the Phillies, like, was that pre Wolfpack era and when all those fan groups started to emerge? That's at, right around that event? time, 01, yeah. 02, like, I would say. Yeah, so I'm a little surprised that nobody emerged in that way. Yeah, there was never really, yeah, there wasn't one of those guys, but you're right. Like, if, if you know, if it was today, if it was 2020, and yeah, there would be a, you know, an Aaron McKee hive, you know, there'd be, a, you know, an Eric Snow <laughs> fan club, there, there would be, you know, you know, the Kimbe's, whatever. I mean, because cause all of those guys had different qualities about them that kind of, you know, endeared them to, to fans. So, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a, but it's, you know, it's a different, you know, 2001, again, you guys are, don't remember, but it was, it was a long time ago. Uh, and and it, was, it was a different, it was a different era in sports. Well, so I guess, Roy, what was, I, I and I know that you're, you're probably the biggest Allen Iverson, Iverson fan walking the earth. So I guess what was your, uh, <laughs> What was your relationship like with Iverson at the time? Like how 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 deeply invested in his successes and failures were you in, in oh, the uh, 
in the prime of his career. Oh, no, no. Iverson at that point really couldn't do any wrong. And look, we all, you know, even even back then, I mean, we all knew the stories. I mean, we all heard about, right. you know, like the late nights in AC. We all knew about, you know, TGI Fridays and Hoolands and all that stuff like that. <laughs> but to me, none of that really mattered to me. It was just because I can, you know, turn on the TV and I'll see this dude six foot tall and 165 pounds go out and really have no business being as good as he was on the basketball court. I mean, he just, again, taking that team. And again, we probably rip on that team more than we should as far as talent-wise, but taking that team to the NBA Finals was a tremendous feat. And and so, to me, Allen Iverson, you know, in 2001 was at the peak of his powers and really really couldn't do anything wrong. And I would say a lot of Philadelphians felt like that. He was was really popular. I mean, you had your people who would call into the radio stations and hate, you know, just to to hate, but Allen Iverson was, he was pretty much a folk hero back in 2001 around here. Yeah, so I I have a story, Roy, I want to tell you. I don't know if I've ever shared this with you before, or even with Seamus. I don't know if I've shared this with either one of you. I was told a story about Allen Iverson, and this was post-Sixers, I believe. So past his his prime here and, and certainly past his athletic peak, to give people an idea of like how much of a freak he was physically, <laughs> despite the fact that, you know, he was doing all this stuff, like going to to hula hands and, and partying and, and doing all that. So I was told there's a, uh, there's like a local, I want to say it's like a speed training facility. So it's a, just basically a place where athletes go during the off season to do weight training, plyometrics, all kinds of stuff, just to, you know, stay in shape. They put guys through testing similar to now where you see these places like P3 mm-hmm. where they'll test a lot of NBA guys for vertical leaps and, and shuttle drills and what have you. So Iverson happens to show up. He's like meeting somebody there in the summer and not because he's working out, just like a, a, a friend of his was in town and he strolls into this place and he's got like half a load on and he's got a Corona <laughs> in his hand. He walks into this place drinking a Corona and he sees there's like this big leaderboard for, I want to say it was like a, a three cone type drill. And the guys that were on the leaderboard are all like NFL players. It's like, cornerbacks wide receivers who had come through there done the test i'm not remembering who's at the top of the leaderboard as we speak right now but so he looks at it and he goes i could definitely beat that and (laughs) like as he's like half crocked wearing i think he's wearing like jeans and a t-shirt or something like probably a really baggy t-shirt if i had to imagine knowing his fashion choices and he lines up to to start this cone drill he gets to the second comb and he he takes a, a very pregnant pause and let's like hold up he runs over to the sideline and pukes his guts out in the trash can <laughs> like is absolutely losing it and then he takes his jewelry off hands them to a friend he goes all right i got this and then he goes out and he breaks the record for the facility for this drill that's and like that's those are the type of stories that you hear about this dude like he didn't lift a weight a day in his life. He obviously had an aversion to practice, but the competitive spirit was always there no matter what state of mind he was in. And certainly when he got between those lines on the court, that was uh, the light went on and, and you knew you were getting 150% of his best effort. So you're saying he did the, the first try with the jewelry on before he threw up? And then he yes. took the jewelry off. Okay, this he- <laughs> is what I was told. Again, this is all I was. I believe. Not I believe this, it. I believe I've, it. I've heard the, this through some very well connected people that would uh, that would know about such a thing. And you know, it's like those. Everyone wants to believe the Michael Jordan stories about you know, his prolific gambling and all that. So I I want to believe the the Allen Iverson just freak of nature partying, but still being a crazy athlete story. So maybe it's not true, but. Oh no! That's a tall tale that I would I would love to uh, to believe in. No, no, I'm I'm sure it's true. I mean, look again, like you can just go and and kind of you know piece together you know whether it's you know through barbershops or just kind of hearsay conversations about times where you know Iverson would you know drop forty and then drive down to AC and you know gamble till four in the morning and then come back and you know on a back to back and score thirty seven. I mean, we've all heard those stories. I mean, so if those if those things happen, we know they happen. We can look at box scores, and I'm sure that that happened. I'm not I'm not surprised at all. All right. Well, we're gonna take we'll take a quick ad break. And then we'll come back and we'll talk some about the uh, the finals and everything else about that year. 
So I got to tell you guys about our friends at Bet Online. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think there's nothing to bet on. And let me tell you, you'd be very wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of sports, events, and games to wager on. Or you can let them bring Vegas to you with their online casino and blackjack. They're all open 24 hours a day, all online, including their $750,000 poker series. If you're into props and entertainment betting, you can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, and even the weather. That is quite an assortment of things you can bet on. So visit their website and join today to receive a 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Be sure to use promo code BLUEWIRE, that's all one word, Bet online, your online wagering experts. All right, and now back to the part that people are here for. So, I get Seamus. Do you have any? Uh, you know, what is your enduring Allen Iverson memory from your childhood? Because the, the, Roy and I certainly have some very pronounced ones, but I'm curious what your uh, your impression of him was as a, a youngster. My favorite moment was when he dropped, what was it, 55 against the Hornets on Easter in 2003. Uh, so that was still Charlotte then um, in the Eastern Conference quarterfinals. That was the last series they had won, uh, I believe, until the, two, the 2012 season. Um, so that was like the last time the Sixers felt like they were at least in theory, good, or a team that could pull something off or maybe make a finals run in 2003. So that's where it sticks for me. And then obviously the culture around Iverson, he's obviously someone who I credit with getting me into basketball. I was just at that age where, you know, six, seven, eight, that's when I started having concrete memories and started watching games religiously. I uh, became a big Sixers fan the following season. Loved Matumbo, obviously. Aaron McKeel, local guy. Uh, you know, it was a lucky era where they had that Sixers team in 2001 and they were okay with Iverson for a couple more years. And that's when the Eagles started going on their run of, you know, a handful of straight and NFC East titles. So it wasn't too bad for me as a kid in terms of being able to watch at least good teams. And it's nice, you kind of alluded to this a little bit, but when it's good when your team, your city's team is good when you're a kid. So you never have to end up being like a bandwagon fan or anything or say like, oh, uh, here's a picture of being you know, a Cowboys starter jacket or something from when I was a kid because the Eagles <laughs> sucks. So I was glad that I'm glad Iverson made me a Sixers fan. And despite everything else from the team, I am still a Sixers fan to this day, but I do credit him a ton with uh, my love for the sport. And I guess partially my love of sports overall. Um, it's less about the moments for Iverson with me. Obviously I've seen highlights. I know all these big things that happen, but it's more about, the idea of him, what he represented, who he was, how Philadelphians empathized with him. That's more of my memory of him than anything concrete. Yeah, I, I think to me what what really stands out with Iverson is that he is one of a very select group of athletes that he shows up in a room in Philadelphia now and it's still like, you know, it, it could it's like the biggest person in the world walked into the room like a guy who is shorter than I am who like could could be very unassuming if you didn't know who he was he walks into the room and it's like a, a fucking giant is there anywhere in Philadelphia he always gets the biggest possible hand at Sixers games and and like look they have lots of people coming to those games now they have lots of Sixers legends that are there like Dr. J is there pretty regularly and like Dr. J is an all-time great, gets some nice hands. He does not get the reception that Iverson gets in that building. And to me, that's a testament to like how much people revered him when he played and I guess like how much he embodies what this, what this city believes it's all about. And it's not just Philadelphia. I mean, like any, anytime he walks oh, in a yeah. room, period. I mean, um, I, I, went, I was up in Springfield for his Hall of Fame uh, induction um, a couple years ago and so, like, the first day of the Hall of Fame ceremonies, um, everybody kind of goes on stage and they have, like, a little pre-ceremony where they actually actually hand out those those orange jackets. And he wasn't there on time. Like, he was late. <laughs> and, and 
Yao Ming's there and Shaq's there and I forget who else is in that class. It was a really good class and they're all there and, you know, so they all get their jackets and someone makes an excuse for AI why he's not there. And then after that ceremony, you go upstairs, you go up to a different part of the Hall of Fame and then you kind of like have different breakout tables where everybody's sitting at a table, individual table, and you can interview guys, you know, like in little, little huddles or whatever. So there's a Yao Ming table and a Shaq table and all this other. So everybody's at their tables. AI's table, of course, still empty. He's not there. And so we're asking Shaq, you know, like, you know, Shaq, you know, why, you know, what's up, you know, with AI, have you heard from him? You know, like, do you understand why he's not here? Shaq's like, I don't know. Like, I would never miss this. This is the Hall of Fame. This is kind of a big deal. <laughs> so we're all talking to Shaq and, you know, Yao Ming and whatever, passing time. Maybe like 30 minutes goes by and I see people start peeling away from the Shaq table. They're just kind of like, kind of, you know, kind of peel away from, from the back. And I turn around and I see AI finally shows up and like, 80% of the people in the room just kind of swarm on AI. Like, he's like, he oh, yeah. was the star of the day, even though, again, he showed up late. And he's arguably not, maybe not the most accomplished person, or he's definitely not the most accomplished person in the room. But as soon as AI showed up to to the Hall of Fame, like, event, like, every, like, he had everyone's attention. And it's, it's the same thing, I think, pretty much anywhere he goes. I think it's really cool seeing how much the current players rock with him. And like part of that is that, and this is my favorite quality about him is after he took the, the beating that he did for, you know, like wearing gaudy jewelry and Mm -hmm. baggy jerseys and and rocking braids and all that stuff. Like, and you know, he's really is probably the reason that the NBA instituted the dress code and, and went through all that. After he and he has put it, he took an ass kicking for being <laughs> himself, which is definitely true. He hasn't turned into one of those like back in the day type guys where he he's denigrating the I players now. Like he I he openly expresses love for for Steph Curry and Russell Westbrook and these guys that he's like, man, I wouldn't have a chance against these dudes. And like I disagree with him on that. I think Allen Iverson in 2020 would be absolutely unbelievable, especially if you put him with it, an offensively inclined coach. But Give him D'Antoni. It, it, yeah, like it's just really refreshing to see a former great basketball player who is not only not tearing guys down, but is like interested in promoting the game and, and telling people, man, these guys are amazing, and I, I, I wish I could do some of the things they could do. I think that is like – that is such a, a breath of fresh air compared to so many of these guys, especially the dudes who are in prominent media positions right. in a lot of cases. Yeah, you look at most most of the guys, now that I think about it, now that you say it, if you look at, look at most of those guys in those positions, they'll all say, you know, they'll give you the back-in-my-day spiel, and you never get that from AI. Like, And, no. I, and he's 100% genuine. I mean, he's, he really loves Steph Curry. Like you said, he really loves – you know, Russell Westbrook and these young guys and LeBron. And like, he really is a fan of today's game. And again, you never hear it from those other guys. And, and it's, it's kind of refreshing to hear. Yeah. It's, you know, I didn't know what his post playing career would look like. I guess I sort of still don't (laughs) say a bit of a nomad in some ways, but that has been one of my favorite things, I guess. So circling back to back to that Oh one team, Mm -hmm. Roy, I, I have toyed with this theory for a while, so I, I'm curious what you, you think about it. Do you think, let's pretend this is a world where Theo Ratliff never gets hurt that year. Was it, did he, he had a wrist injury, am I remembering correctly? Yeah, broken wrist, I believe. I think he broke his wrist. Broken wrist, yeah. yeah. Um, if Theo Ratliff doesn't get hurt, do you think they would have been better or worse off so for the entire playoffs, not just the finals against uh, the Lakers and Shaq, better or worse off if they never make the Ratliff plus Ooh. Matumbo trade? That's a that's a very good question. How does that play out? <laughs> it's a very good question. I will take my um, Pepe Sanchez bias out of this because he was part of that trade. <laughs> um, but see, see, because Theo was Theo was an All Star that year. Theo was really good. He was really good. Um, and and then again again you you traded Kukoc in that deal as well, um, and you really could have used Kukoc in that Lakers series because you kind of ran out of gas, um, you didn't have enough scoring, you just couldn't keep up. Um, that's a good question. I, I I've I've had that same thought as well. Like I've just leaned towards the Matumbo thing because I know how it turned out. But a healthy Theo Ratliff and, and you know some more depth might have it might have. 
that's the thing. I don't know if they would have beat the Lakers anyway, but they they probably right, would have took another game. Anyway. Yeah, they probably would have took another game. I guess rewatching some of that, or I watched the finals, but also parts of that playoff run, and I'm just struck by like how different that team was compared to the early part of the year where they were just blowing by teams. Yeah. And, and Ratliff was a big part of that because unlike Matumbo, that was, he could move right. and he could like in transition when they're playing that, even when they're not pressing, when they're playing, you know, pressure defense in the half court setting, if they get a turnover, not only are you dealing with the guards coming down the floor, you have Ratliff trailing for yeah. dunks and lobs and, and what have you. And so I just, that to me was the best version of that team. Now I don't know that like maybe Shaq puts up like forty five a game if you're just dumping it to him against Ratliff because there was a serious size disadvantage there. But I think the flip side of that is you can maintain your identity as a team more with Ratliff on the floor rather than Matumbo and not get drawn into this, you know, slow paced half court game that that was really how the Lakers won that series is they just out executed Philly uh, when it mattered. And so I, I, I wonder about that all the time. And I do think, as you mentioned, Roy, that Kukoc inclusion in that deal was significant bec- because he was by far the best shooter they had on that team. Right. And once Aaron McKee was like lost his legs and was hurt in uh, the, the final stretch of that season, that was pretty much a wrap for any of their, their scoring outside of Iverson. Yeah, that, that was the thing. Like, that team just did not have another scorer. I mean, like, you would have the occasional game where, you know, Dikembe would have, like, you know, 16 and 16 or something like that. And, and you know, or maybe you'd have a game where one of the other guys would get hot. But, like, if Allen, if, like, if Iverson's shot was off, I mean, like, it was – It, it was big trouble. <laughs> it was usually a loss, which is which is kind of impressive that, you know, they, they pulled out that game seven against the Raptors because – he like he shot terribly that game, but but everybody else you know made shots on it when it mattered, and and they they won the series. I also had forgotten how insane Raja Bell's emergence was that year, where they signed him to I think they signed him to a ten day in like early April. Oh, geez. and then converted the contract, and then all <laughs> of a sudden he's getting rolled out in playoff lineups, and it's like, hey, surprise, buddy, you're part of our plan to stop Kobe Bryant in the finals, and honestly, like did a pretty good job and that was a, a long-term you know I don't want to call it a rivalry because Kobe certainly yeah. got the best of of Raja Bell over the years but he was one of the only guys that had any sort of chance slowing him down and it was just a matter of look Shaq is basically unstoppable down there and I guess that was the shame of the Matumbo trade was it, it's not that Matumbo was bad and I do think that you know rewatching that series he was actually better than I had remembered in, in making Shaq work for his points and, and Shaq just happened to hit a lot of, you know, like baby hooks and, and baseline jumpers and things of that nature. But you know, it, it, it was prime Shaq. There's just nothing right. you can do when he was motivated. That's it. You're, you're drawing dead. There's no way to stop him. Yeah. When, when I saw that you were doing the rewatch, you know, I started thinking about, about the series. And of course, the first thing I thought about was a step over, but the second thing I thought about, was Shaq just elbowing Dikembe in the mouth? And, and you know, like, I think he, <laughs> they like, had a montage during the one game of all the times he elbowed him in the head. It was ridiculous. It was insane. And Dikembe was a defensive player of the year that year. Like, the man was an excellent defender. But then it was prime Shaq, just, just body, you know, however many pounds Shaq was at the time, just elbowing him and body him and just going for like 35 and 18. And there's nothing you can do, there's nothing you could have done. It was, it was amazing. I think uh, I think game four of that series, I want to say it was game four, because game three was that really close, Robert Horry, it's a, a three in the final minute that, that sealed that game. And that was sort of the, the beginning of the end. But between games three and four, there was a, a couple day rest, and Shaq and Matumbo had a war of words to the press. It was more that Shaq had a war of words with Matumbo, who was, you know, tried to play the respectful... Uh, I'm not going to give any bulletin board material guy, right. but Shaq comes out and he says, you go, you know, I want you to play defense like a man, stop <laughs> flopping and like saying, all it was like really great theater. And Matumbo actually came out in game four. And I thought he almost like fell for the bait and Shaq just came in and fucking destroyed him <laughs> in that game four. Like absolutely was just leveling him on the block. And it was instant too. It was like, 
very first possession comes down and he's just slamming his shoulder into Matumbo's chest, who had benefited from some, you know, like maybe a little bit of theatrics, a little bit mm-hmm. of flopping mm-hmm. throughout the series. And then, you know, his manhood gets questioned and he didn't want to didn't want to go down soft like that. And it actually might have ended up worse for the Sixers that he didn't. I th- that's my hot take is Matumbo should have flopped more in that series. Yeah, that's yeah. our only chance. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. And because, and again, you had the bodies just in case, you know, I mean, not that McCullum and Geiger were world beaters or whatever, but you had the bodies to kind of throw a check. If you wanted right. to kind of like have your have your have your big man kind of like flop around, but I don't know really. Again, I don't really know know what you could have done against that check. I mean, again, this isn't a Lakers podcast, but if people doubt how great check was, just look at that two thousand and one run. I mean, that that Shaq and Kobe and that and that run were they were just amazing players. They were just fantastic. Yeah, absolutely bonkers. And I think the biggest testament to Kobe in that series is that like he didn't even play or shoot particularly well. No. And the Sixers were still so in fear of him that in big possessions they're throwing double teams at him and forcing the ball out of his hands to try to live with anything else other than Shaq, Shaq or Kobe beating them. So, yeah, that I mean, that team could have won eight titles if they had stayed together. They were just – they were crazy good. But but give, you know, give props to the Sixers again. Like you had – like you said, George Lynch was hurt. He had the broken foot. Eric Snow had the bad ankle. Um, Aaron McKee was banged up. Like a lot of your wing guys are banged up. Like you got a, I mean, you got what four starts out of Jermaine Jones in, in that series. Yeah, like, God bless. Yeah. He he did absolutely nothing, nothing. in that series. It's like you had Roger Bell, like you said, was a ten day guy in April, which is crazy. I didn't even realize that. Um, like getting, I actually had yeah. forgotten until I was the broadcast brought it up. Like, oh, they signed him out of the CBA in wow. April, and I was like, what? It's like the Greg Monroe signing from <laughs> last year, except if it was a way better version of that. Yeah, wow, that's a, that's amazing. But given, I mean, given their health and the, and the bodies that they had to throw it at the Lakers, they did a really good job, man. I mean, like you, I mean, again, like you look at the series four one, but I mean, they did a really good job given given the situation. Yeah, and so we can get to my gripes with. Larry Brown in a minute but what one thing I will say that impressed me looking back at that playoff run is how many times you know in the second half they would turn to a different style and climb back into those games and and even in those finals that I think a lot of people remember as you know they, the Lakers won 4-1 and it wasn't that close most of those games even the ones where the Sixers lost pretty comfortably there was a moment where they turned it up and brought it back to within four, six, maybe eight points. And, and they were right there in that game. If they just could have gotten, you know, another stop, maybe somebody hits a three. I mm-hmm. think the biggest the biggest issue looking back was that Aaron McKee was just a shell of himself. And, like, it, it, rightfully so. I think he had a, a chip fracture in his ankle. And then midway through the series, he collided with Kobe Bryant and busted up his hand. So, you mm-hmm. know, he's dealing with a, a shooting hand problem and a lower body problem. And that, that makes it a little hard to, uh, to get your offensive rhythm going, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, there was, uh, so during that run, you guys probably don't remember, like they were, the Sixers were on the back cover of the daily news for like 16 days in a row, some crazy amount of days. And then I can imagine one yeah. of, so one of the days, uh, they were all, um, basically they dressed everybody up as the revel, like revolutionaries. And so it was like Eric Snow and, and uh, Alan Iverson and Aaron McKee. And they had like uh, bandages around their various injuries. So like Eric Snow had a bandage <laughs> around his foot and he's like playing the drums like the revolutionaries. And then Alan Iverson's playing the flute and he's all bandaged up. Aaron McKee's whatever injuries he has. That was one of the other things I have. One of the memories I have is that like those guys, again, being so banged up. But again, they were on the cover of Daily News every day as heroes just because they were fighting through all that. Who were the beat writers at that time? Like Phil Jasner was, it was Jasner. Yeah, it was Jasner. Uh, geez, I'm trying to think who else. Uh, wow. Um, I know. I know it was Jasner. I'm trying to think who else offhand. He's like the one. Um, yeah. Like figurehead of that era in yeah, terms of sports legend. writing. Yeah. Oh yeah, Jasner's a king. He's a king. Yeah. Yeah, I, I honestly, I would not know. I was. They were on TV, and that was my only real relationship with uh well and going to games but yeah it was not uh pulling up the sunday paper reading about the sixers <laughs> at that point um what is that yeah i did that series like i also forgot like iverson had so many just monster games 
during that playoffs, not just that game one in the finals, but I think game seven against Milwaukee, I want to say he scored 44. And that was just – I can't remember another Philadelphia athlete having a run like that where the, the pressure was on them to basically just will the team to victories by themselves and over and over and over again they deliver. Like that's That's probably the greatest singular – stretch yeah. that I can remember. Yeah, yeah. Because like, you know, yeah. like Nick Foles obviously won the Super Bowl right. and that was probably the greatest single game I would say in my lifetime. But in terms of like long stretches, that Iverson run is up there with anybody. Yeah, because he had that that um that well fifty four in game two and then Vince came back, I think the next game it had like fifty or something. Yeah. And then the night the AI got the MVP trophy, like he had like 54 or something like that. Like he had a, just a, like you said, a, just a couple of, of incredible games, just like every series, like, you know, they, they would be down two one or, or whatever have you. And he would need to kind of, kind of come up big or in game sevens, he would need to come up big and he would do it pretty much every single time. It was, it was, it was amazing to see. So where do you think, if, like, let's say we dropped prime Allen Iverson, into the league today i like this ballpark where you think he'd be in terms of i guess like the top 20 or like wherever in that range he would go I what li- tier I like is this. he in i like is this. he all nba is he like is he better than Ooh, i like this um i i assume this is today's nba we play today's nba like we're playing you know like three pointers and all that good stuff yes okay yeah and we'll we'll also say for sake of argument that Iverson would have adjusted his game somewhat he would be a league, like he would be a league average three-point shooter I think in my limited knowledge he would be pretty akin to Harden in some ways where he was probably miscast as an off-ball guard early in his career and in today's NBA with an offensive-minded coach could have been a great you know power guard lead guard just whatever you want to say playmaker ball handler uh, because when his time when he wasn't playing with Larry Brown, his assist rates went way up. He had a 4.6 assist in that 2001 season, which seems low for a player of his capability in his passing, which was quite underrated, I think. And, you know, I could see a situation where he averages, you know, with 33 points a game and he gets to the foul line 10 times and shoots, you know, maybe 44% from the field, but 35, 36 from the, uh, from deep and maybe, you know, 75, 80 from the line and just is you know, never not at the line, doesn't never not getting fouled, different things like that. Yeah, I kind of, I I think he's basically unguardable today. That's the thing. It's like, think about how many players could actually guard him one-on-one. Like there's not that many, like there aren't many. So I think he's all NBA because I struggle to, you know, find four guards that are better than Allen Iverson in today's NBA. I just, I just don't see it because he could get to the basket at will, and then again with the you know less of a you know uh, reliance on big men. I mean, he's going to score. He's going to get to the basket. He's going to finish, or like you said, he's going to get fouled. He'll live at the line. Um, I he easily averages you know thirty plus in today's league. I don't see again like I don't see how he wouldn't be, you know, somewhere in the six to ten range as far as best players in the NBA. Yeah, I think he's he's an easy all-star, number one, because people would still love him just as much today as they did back then yeah. for assuming that everything about his personality holds. Um, but I like I, the thing that I've also grappled with is like because they never found a second guy for him is who's the current player, assuming we throw out like LeBron, who everybody would be good next to. Who is the current player that would have been the best number two? Oh, next wow. To Iverson. I was Ooh. thinking about this the other day. Like, what's the style of guy? Because, uh, you know, one of the things that I was thinking hmm. about recently is the fact that, you know, they had that backcourt his rookie year where it was him and Stackhouse, and it was too many cooks in the kitchen, and Stackhouse wasn't happy. And that was part of why, I, at least from my memory, that was, that was, even younger during that when that trade went down but that was part of the reason they moved on and so I was trying to go through okay who is a high level current player that fits next to Iverson from a skill set perspective but is also not going to they're not going to run into an issue where you know one guy is unhappy because they're not getting their touches right. or, or what have you right that's so a, I'm, yeah. I'm interested to see who you would land on. Boy. that's a very good question um 
Yeah, obviously we're going to like throw out the, the obvious LeBron. Um, yeah, you have to kind of worry about, you know, ball-dominant guys. Um, I, I, do two guys come to mind? I don't know. I'll say one. Well, I'll say, I'll, I'll say them both. I'll say Kawhi and Clay. I don't know Clay if Kawhi, was the first person I thought of. Yeah, I don't know if Kawhi is too ball dominant to play with AI. Like, I don't know how much of a secondary role he'd play. Uh, he'd like to play with, with Allen Iverson, but so assuming that he wouldn't want to play with Allen Iverson, I think Clay Thompson's probably the best guy. Like you have a elite, you know, a premium defender, a guy who doesn't need, you know, doesn't need to create, you know, the ball to, to create his own offense. Um, he could just run off screens and shoot threes all day and, and score twenty five with AI easy. I mean, that'd be that'd be easy money. So I think Clay's probably the perfect fit in today's NBA with, with AI. Yeah, Clay is a really good one. I'll give you two names because this was a mailbag topic for me this week. I'll give you the two names that I brought up. I think Paul George would kick ass next to mm-hmm. him. I think like great shooter, but also can create enough on his own that you know you can actually bench Iverson from time to time. The amount of minutes that he played that year, yeah. just crazy. Yeah. Obviously, wouldn't do that now. But the other guy who I think would be very interesting is Kristaps Porzingis because Ooh. if you put a big man on the floor who, you know, he can rim run, he can pick and pop. He's not a guy who needs to dominate the ball to score. He can protect the rim. And he, he's like, to me, that's like the, the most super powered version of what Ratliff was that year. And like, that is the sort of guy that I think would just, if you put, if that's the starting place for your team, if you have Iverson as the head of the snake, and then it's Porzingis is the five, and you can play five out, and Iverson can just attack switches yeah. and, and ISO and do all that. Like that is a a game changer, I think. So I would love to see him. I would have loved to see him play with any sort of stretch big, but especially one like that that is has so many other uh, tools in the kit. I'd love to see yeah. Patrick Beverly. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Besides just the demeanor of both of them and just being badass motherfuckers, I think that's the perfect off-ball guard the same way. I guess they kind of use him with Harden the way they use him in, with the Rockets and now in L.A. Just just put him on today's Clippers. They have Paul George already. They have Patrick Beverly. Yeah, I mean, a lot of well, guys, I, I think, would look good on uh, on today's Clippers, I think. What about Jermaine, Jermaine Jones? Would he look good on today's Clippers? Well, him and Tyrone Hill, I, that, those are uh, – <laughs> That might be stretching it a little bit. Okay, all right. So one more before I think we'll probably get out of here, Roy. I guess uh, looking back, do you look at Larry Brown favorably or unfavorably? Let's like assume that we are setting aside, I guess, the managerial decisions because certainly if we we include him as part of the reason that they ended up with Larry Hughes over – <laughs> uh, Dirk or Paul Pierce yeah. that's going to sour everybody yeah. but well, I guess what is your what was your thought on him as a coach at the time and and, and maybe how has that changed since the years have gone by uh, you know at at the time again Larry Brown again it was like AI like he really could do no wrong again I mean and he probably you know if if you asked him today you know did you do you know could did you do any wrong during that era he would probably tell you yes because he probably gave Iverson a bit too much latitude, but Larry Brown and that Sixers team, you know, gave me, you know, that was a tremendous year. Like that was a a lot of enjoyment and, and I'll always remember and be thankful to Larry Brown for that. Now in the years since then, I mean, Larry Brown, every time you put a microphone in front of him, he'll kind of go revisionist history on you and, you know, kind of, you know, say things that kind of sully that, sully that, uh, or tarnish that, that legacy. But I mean, Larry <laughs> Brown, again, was, is, was a hall of fame coach, you know, amazing, you know, amazing motivate motivator of talent, um, schemed that team exceptionally well. And, you know, you know, GM and personnel decisions aside, I'll, I'll always have a, a special place in my heart for him. Yeah. I think it's, it's just hard to divorce the, yeah. <laughs> you know, the game management side from the managerial. Cause like in a certain sense, he handicapped himself right. with that team that like you watch, you watch some of those games and like, I don't think he wanted to have Iverson to drive toward the rim and his best outlet for a shooter is Eric Snow, like 12 feet from the basket. I don't think that's like, Hey, Larry Brown wanted to set up a team that just had absolutely zero shooting and and zero (laughs) space for Iverson to work with. But that was, I guess the, the natural conclusion of trying to get, 
uh, enough defenders and enough toughness around Iverson. So, you know, that was, I, as I said earlier, I, I do look back now and I see a lot of these comebacks and the adjustments that were made. And I give him credit for, we brought up Roger Bell to get that much out of a guy that was like basically off the street yeah. coming in April and was like a legitimate contributor in a bunch of huge moments during that playoff run. That is, that's some, that's coaching makes a difference in that way. But yeah, I think that the bigger issue has been him opening his mouth <laughs> in the years. Since. Yeah. He hasn't exactly done himself too many favors over the, over the last uh, 10 years or so, which is a shame because again, I mean, his resume is fantastic. I mean, he's a nomad, but I mean like he's a winner. Like he's, you know, he's, he's won right. in you know, several different places, but it's just that, you know, and at different levels yeah. too, like to college and the NBA. Yeah. But yeah. What can you do? Yeah. yeah. Time comes for us all. Exactly, exactly. Um, all right, well, Seamus, do you have any final wrap-up thoughts before we get out of here on that team that you want to offer? Alan Iverson is better than Steve Nash. I saw that was a debate on Twitter today. Yeah. Wow. Any thoughts on that, Roy? Because I tend to agree. <laughs> well, yeah, I love Nash. Yeah, yeah. You're asking the wrong guy. I mean, Nash is great, but – but well, let, let me ask you guys a question. If Vince Carter doesn't go to his graduation, do they, do they, do they win that series? Hmm. I, don't, I don't know enough to say. Okay, I'm gonna say yes because <laughs> I just believe that Iverson would have willed them to that one. Okay, regardless. Although considering how it ended, and they barely squeaked that one out right. after Vince Carter missed that shot, I, I guess that's that's certainly up for debate. But since I was a fan at the time and not a reporter, I will say that our guy, Philadelphia's guy, would have come through in some way. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, Roy, we really appreciate you uh, coming on with us today. Everybody always, always check out whatever Roy is doing, but especially right now with NBC Sports Philadelphia and the Broad Street Line radio show. Thank you so much for sharing some perspective with Seamus and I, and uh, hopefully we can do this, something like this again soon. Anytime you need an old man opinion, I am here. Thanks, Roy. <laughs> I am holding you to that, even though I said we we're not friends anymore. So. <laughs> Take care, guys. See ya. Whatever business you're in, growth isn't just about getting bigger. At ADP, we believe it's about getting stronger by turning data into insights so you can build teams that work as teams. By using our AI technology to help catch payroll errors before their errors. And by keeping ahead of thousands of changing regulations so you can keep ahead of everything else. ADP helps businesses like yours grow stronger every day. ADP, HR talent, time, and payroll.